Hi guys, Russell here. Uh, uh, when I first started working, uh, a lot of CEOs used to talk about having a fireside chat and talking about uh, the business and stuff like that. I was always very disappointed when there never was a fireplace uh, around these fireside chats. So here we are, I'm gonna give you a fireside chat about what we've learned this year uh, uh, and what I think we can take from it. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe go forward. I know there's a few weeks left in the training year, but I think a lot of the lessons we've learned this year we can apply uh, and use going forward. So, you know, the core theme uh, of what I've been talking about and the way I've been invested and ideas I recommend has been the idea that politics favors labor over capital. Um, and, you know, a lot of this thinking came uh, from what I saw is surging food inflation. Um, you know, food inflation tends to drive political changes of one sort or another. Basically, when people can't afford to feed themselves, they demand change to sort that out, if that makes sense. Um, so what I've done here is shown a very, very long uh, food inflation index is from the US. And you can see in the sort of gold standard era uh, through the early 1900s, uh, even you know, through to the 1970s, Food inflation was fairly low. There was a big increase in World War II, but generally food inflation stayed low. And then in the 70s, the system that was in place broke apart. Food inflation surged, which then brought in what I would call the pro-capital era from 1980s onwards. Uh, now, in this one, you can't really see it, but the, definitely the speed of food inflation declined. And then until about 2020, it was very low. And then you can see we've had a surge in food inflation again. And for me, I think this is really driving political change globally. The change in food inflation is much easier to see in Japan. It's not as longer term. Uh, all statistics broke down during World War II in Japan. What you can see is that food inflation rose for 70s, 80s in Japan uh, at a much lower rate, the lower, lower rate in the States. And then from 1990 onwards was stagnant. And for me, that was really, you know, the attraction of a pro-capital era, which by definition is not really democratically, should not be democratically popular because, you know, rich people tend to be much less on workers. So democracy should tend to favor pro-labor policies as a rule. Uh, but, you know, when you can get food inflation stagnant, you know, food prices going sideways, that is a quite popular policy, even if people are suffering from, from lower low incomes or low income growth. But what we can see is food inflation started to rise uh, when Abe came in and then has exploded higher. What is really surprising about this is that wages in Japan have not kept up with this. Real wages in Japan are still falling and in food terms they're falling dramatically. So I expect to see some political shift in Japan at some point because of this. But the point of this presentation or this slide is just to show that there has really been a change in the sort of food inflation environment uh, in Japan, which was really a lead economy for, for many years on bonds and on deflation. So, you know, as I would have mentioned endlessly, sort of long GLD, short TLT is still my preferred trade uh, to capture this. And the basic idea is as if uh, if financing can, financial conditions are not kept tight, then you're going to get a surge in, in inflation. So you need TLT to be weak to stop things like GLD going up. And what you see is, you know, that trend has been very good. 
it spiked in October, which was great. I thought that was the beginning of a big breakout. It's come back, but I think this is a great opportunity to add to either side of those trades. Um, now, coming into 2023, what I've got right is a changing politics should change markets. So this is uh, a very long popular graph among sort of macro analysts and other people like that of Japanese banks versus the topics. So the Japanese bank topics bank index versus Japanese topics. It's a much better index than the Nikkei. What you can see is from sort of 1990s onwards, banks have been a disastrous place to be uh, versus the topics. But as this sort of uh, a pro labor shift would imply, rising rates should mean a better environment for banks. And we have seen banks outperform uh, in Japan and as a, against a very well-performing topics as well. So banks have been good. Um, and so, you know, the end of this sort of pro-capital era uh, is ending the relative, a 30-year relative bear market for Japanese banks. Um, so that's good, you know, so that has been in line with what I would have expected in 2023. Likewise, Europe, which has many characteristics in line, uh, they shares with Japan, we should see European banks do much, much better. And that has been the case. We look at it, so these are the sort of top performing uh, stocks in Europe. You know, Credito's up there, BVA and Santander, uh, you know, have all done much, much better, which is what we'd expect in this type of environment. So what I would expect in a pro-labor world is that the average company will struggle. So this is the S&P equal weighted, you probably have seen this, but it has really gone nowhere since 2021, which is what I would have expected. Uh, US stocks would be a waste of time Generally speaking, the average US stock would be a waste of time. And that has been correct. You know, you've got to keep financial assets under control to keep inflation under control if wages are going higher. And that's what we see, equal weight S&P dog. Now we get into where I've been wrong. So I would have assumed that uh, rising interest rates in the end of a pro-capital era would also have been the end of the relative performance of uh, growth stocks, growth versus value. Now this is MSCI definitions of growth, which is largely, I think, based on things like price to book. So high price to book is, is a fast growth company, low price to book is a low growth company. But what you can see from here is in 2022, growth got smacked, uh, but is rebounded, right? And it's held as value versus uh, value stocks, particularly. Um, and, you know, the reason I would think this is the case is I would have assumed growth stocks would have moved with their bond yields. And what we can see is like the earnings yield for a company like Microsoft has stayed at near all-time highs, even as its uh, corporate bond yields have moved higher. So it broke with that relationship, particularly in 23. Um, the best possible answer for why that is, is that, you know, corporates uh, get paid uh, or CEOs get paid on share price performance and they do share buybacks, which is the biggest driver of that. So they're incentivized to keep buying back shares, even when economically they don't make much sense. Is that gonna end? I don't know. Uh, politically, I would say yes, but it may not be for years, we'll see. Um, the other thing I would assume to gain, you know, sort of in line with the growth is that I thought China would lead the way in uh, sort of pro-labor anti-capital policies. So what the Chinese have done, which I think if they did to the big US stocks would realize exactly the same thing. It's going to look at how they collect data, how they use data, how they promote their own firms over other firms, 
uh, you know, and said you can't do that. And the tech shares have been disastrous ever since. Growth has been very weak. While in the States, you know, they sort of tried it, uh, but what we saw this year, for example, is Microsoft is going to be able to buy Activision. So the, 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 you've got, I think, you know, what you could say is the US is so pro-capital, it's so ingrained in the system, elections are so expensive and corporates have so much power that they can't really break the power of large corporates. Uh, and so you just got to keep buying US stocks uh, because of that. I think that's a, to be honest, a reasonable argument. I, I don't think it's correct, but it's a reasonable argument. So it could be right. Um, but that's where I've been wrong. I thought China would be a lead on what was going to have to big US stocks. And that has not been the case. Um, now, as you would have seen from the beginning of the presentation, food inflation is here to stay, and it has been. Food CPI has continued to be strong, but buying uh, food-related commodities has been disastrous. Even with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which are two big grain producers, what we've seen is grain prices have been spectacularly weak. Now, what I would say is there's one big caveat to that is that when I look at Chinese corn prices, so China's biggest consumer of corn, they have not fallen like this. They have stayed pretty strong. Uh, that is on the back of the Chinese trying to become self-sufficient or regain self-sufficiency and also tariffs on the US imports. They don't want to be reliant on US corn. So this is a US corn price, but it is really the sort of benchmark price. When we look at Chinese corn, it's a different one. But that being said, I thought Chinese corn prices would hold up corn and grain prices everywhere. Rice prices have been strong, uh, again, some more Asian focus. But, you know, for tradable commodities and tradable commodity stocks, which are largely outside of China and the US, you've actually had pretty poor performance. So I've been wrong on that one. And I could maybe continue to be wrong on that one. I, I still think, uh, ultimately, if the pro-labor policies continue, uh, grain prices and commodity prices will go higher, but definitely been wrong on that this year. Um, the other thing I've learned this year, so it's not really a mistake, but what I've really learned is that trade policies really determine exchange rates. So what I mean by that is the US is the world's biggest importer. So when they import from you, then you know, they're trading with you and for your benefit. And despite the efforts of China to try and grow uh, its trade, it still lags US quite a lot. Japan, you know, is still a sort of nothing, nothing done. Um, but what I'm trying to say here is if you're a big importer, you get to set the terms of that, of how that business works, how that import works. And so US policy has become much more important. US trade policy has become much more important than exchange rates. How can we see that? So this is the Mexican peso versus the renminbi. So Mexico has loads of problems in inflationary, it tends to be an inflationary nation. Fiscal policy is dubious at best. Pemex is a terrible run oil and gas company. Uh, you know, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurship, tech development is lacking in Mexico. So typically I would assume Mexican peso would always fall against the Chinese Yuan. And that had been a great way of thinking about investing in currencies and currency trends for my investment career. This year has not been the case. Chinese Iran has been lackluster. Mexican peso has been super strong. And the only reason you can really find from that is China is suffering the negative consequences of US trade policy and Mexico is suffering or benefiting the positive consequences. So what I'm trying to say is exchange rates are no longer macro market set, set, uh, priced. 
they are priced by trade policy and by the person or the nation that trades the most or imports the most, which is the US. So we really need to look at trade policy, I think, when we think about currencies. Um, the, the Even though bonds, bonds have been weak, they haven't been as weak, they had a big rally last month, but uh, most of the arguments I see for bonds don't make any sense to me, they're completely illogical. Uh, they're sort of living in the past, which has gone past a different country. The best possible argument I think people can make for bonds is that the US can't afford them. So this is the social security, which is by far the biggest expenditure in the US. And what we can see is net interest payments on uh, outstanding bonds were minimal, very, very low for a very, very long time. And now they've surged and they're not too far off social security payments. This could be, and is a very valid argument to say, they can't raise rates, so they're going to yield curve control, something like that. Um, I get that. I think it's possible. I know that the Americans try not to do that type of stuff, but they may well do it. Uh, I think it'll be incredibly positive for gold. We've already seen that. Um, but you know, for me, I think bonds are still a short, especially relative to gold. But you know, this is an argument that I think does make sense if you really want to be bullish on bonds. Uh, personally, if I think this is your argument, just go buy gold instead. But there you go. Anyway, these are sort of some of the lessons I've learned from this year. Um, you know, uh, I think, you know, broadly speaking, the ideas that I put forward are correct. Uh, they've played out generally correctly. Uh, I wish I'd bought, I'd put all my money into the Magnificent Seven. Uh, you know, but hindsight is a terrible way to trade. But outside of that, the predictions have broadly been correct uh, in terms of uh, GLD versus TLT and changes in the performance of markets in Japan and Europe. And I think we've learned a lot about how currencies operate in a new sort of pro-labor environment. Hope that makes sense. The end of my fireside chat, I don't know if I'll do a fireside chat again. It's a bit uncomfortable to sit like this, but uh, I wish you all happy holidays. Uh, I will do more presentations, but I just won't do videos anymore for the rest of the year, I don't think. Stay safe, we'll talk again soon. Ciao.